Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bellow. And I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, each week, along with our colleagues Nathan Connolly and Ed Ayers, we explore a different aspect of American history. And this week, we're exploring American history with some of our listeners, too. Next month, Backstory wraps up production after more than 12 years. That's an amazing sentence. And to commemorate the show, over the last six months, you've heard Best of Backstory episodes presented by each of our five hosts, past and present. But on this episode, we wanted to hear from you, the listener, about your favorite moments from the show. We got some great responses. I'm not surprised about that because we have great listeners. And I want to thank everyone who got in touch. You guys chose a range of topics, each of them meaningful to the present moment in their own way. So on the final installment of our Best of Backstory series, we're really excited to present to you your favorite backstory moments. You're going to learn how residents of a North Carolina town are still grappling with painful memories from an industrial tragedy almost 30 years ago. And you'll hear about the history and ongoing controversy of the Confederate monuments along Richmond's Monument Avenue. But first up, we have a message from Backstory listener Chris Wade with his favorite moment from the show's history. My name is Chris Wade in Scottsville, Virginia, not far from the land of Wahoo Wah. The episode that really caught me was from years ago. The subject was mail, how the Postal Service created a network to unite the various parts of the infant country, sort of a national nervous system. And the show went on to cover how Mark Twain and Buffalo Bill brought the Pony Express into popular culture. It even got to uh, talking about a, an experiment with rocket mail. So uh, right now, when the Postal Service is getting a lot of notice, good and bad, might be a good time for us to hear a reminder of the vital role it has played in our history. This is Chris Wade in Scottsville, Virginia. Thank you. Okay, I have to say, right off the cuff, this reaches all the way back to my time period, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> exactly. I'm feeling good that we, we're doing something that stretches the whole span of American history. Well, Joanne, you know that in the bids, there are topics called evergreen because they're always relevant. And I don't think there's any topic more permanently relevant than the humble post office. I totally agree with you, Brian. That's absolutely true. And I'm guessing now we're going to hear how and why. You bet. So here's the segment, Nickel and Don, from our 2012 show, You've Got Mail. I introduce the segment with former Backstory host Peter Onuf. So, Peter, now that I've got the mail, I kind of want to know where the system that delivers it came from. Well, you got no mail, you got no country, okay? Mail is absolutely important for stitching these distant settlements together into a more perfect union. And that's why it's right there in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. 
provides for post offices and post roads. And without that system of information exchange, there's going to be no United States of America. Because what does United mean? United means the post office. So de Tocqueville's surprised to see this in the wilds of Michigan, but people moving there would have been expecting to find that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, that makes it possible for them to move there. Who knows? They might have read about this Michigan land in some eastern newspaper. And by the time they get there in the 1830s, things are starting to change. They're counting on this system of postal services and roads so much that they want to start sending letters. But there's one thing standing in their way, Peter. Different rates of postage for different kinds of mail. A newspaper could travel for one cent to a subscriber, and a newspaper could be exchanged for free between one newspaper publisher and another. This is David Hinken. He's a professor of history at UC Berkeley. In order to pay for the, the, the system, uh, the government had two options. One is, is simply to you know, raise revenue and consider it an expense of government. I'm, a, I'm opposed to that right off the bat. So right. you can't do that. What else are they got? The alternative was to charge other users. Sometimes when you set up a network you know, or a highway, uh, you decide which users to charge, even though lots of people may, may, may benefit from it. So the uh, decision was to charge people who sent letters. What was the rationale of, of, of tapping um, letter writers? The rationale was that they were using it for a private purpose, I whereas see. the newspapers gotcha. were using it for what was regarded as a more public purpose. How much did it cost to send a letter then? It was extraordinarily expensive to send letters. I'll give you an example. If you sent a single sheet letter between Albany, New York, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so that's about 400 miles, uh-huh. um, that would be 25 cents. So that's between one quarter and one third of the average daily wage of a non-farm laborer in the United States at that time. Hmm. Or let me put it differently. You want to send a letter from New York City up to the capital, say to Albany. Um, Postage would be more than 50% higher than shipping a barrel of flour over the same route. (laughs) But you could send a newspaper for one cent, and you could send a newspaper for free if you sent it to someone else who published a newspaper. Oh, see, and I'm already thinking... Couldn't you cheat that system in some way? Right. You, you, there, there, were, there were ways uh, around it. Uh, the main thing that people did uh, was that they didn't write letters. I think that's the first thing I want to stress. It would be an extraordinarily important occasion that would warrant such a thing. But some people had a way around it. And here is where folks began to get a, a little bit more clever. You took a newspaper and you, and you put it in, and if you wrote on it, uh, as people sometimes did, you know, hi, mom, I'm fine. Uh, that wouldn't work because the postmaster would see that. And then when uh, the recipient went to pick up the newspaper, the recipient would be charged a letter rate. So what you had to do was somehow disguise it. So in 1840, a story appeared in the New Orleans Picayune describing one of the tricks. Someone sent a newspaper from New York to Boston, and he addressed the newspaper to John Garrigo Smith. Um, and the newspaper explained that that middle name, that bizarre middle name, G-A-R-I-G-O, uh, was uh, actually an acronym, and it meant goods all received in good order. In other words, instead of an ordinary business correspondence confirming the receipt of goods from Boston to New York, this milliner was able to do that by uh, simply addressing a newspaper with that name and sending it for the newspaper rate of one cent. Very clever. Here's something more elaborate. So there was a man who wanted to um, communicate with his father without paying the postage. So he penciled into the margins of the newspaper a drawing of an awl, A-W-L. It's something you can make a hole with in a, a leather strap. 
the all was pointing to a, a well, like a water well. Um, so this, this is a rebus, which where the son tells the father that all is well. People did their best to send letters through paper rates, and the post office was concerned about it. Uh, a memo from the postmaster general um, in the 1840s said that any writing that conveyed an idea to the person to whom the paper was sent or informed him of any distinct fact was subject to letter postage. <laughs> and this actually created problems with uh, with actually addresses. Uh, you could get in trouble for writing an address because as the postmaster general himself said, if A writes his name on the margin of a paper, sends it to a friend by mail, he conveys to him several distinct ideas and facts. First of all, that he's alive. Second, that he's well enough to write. <laughs> Three, that he remembers him. And fourth, that he has sent him by mail this very newspaper. Um, <laughs> and that tells him where he is, right? So this was in some ways a, a, a logically untenable position right. that the post office was taking by 1842. Um, why then? Why the 1840s? Newspaper's been around a long time. Why did it take this long to, to occur to people? In part because people were, were, were moving uh, at faster rates and at much further distances for all kinds of reasons. And in part because the postal system itself encouraged people to imagine that they had some connection. Right, so right. If, if you grew up in Vermont and you moved to, to Michigan, uh, the fact that there is a postal route and you can send a, a small-town newspaper from Vermont to a small-town Michigan does create a, a sense of proximity uh, yeah. that probably um, encouraged and, and cultivated more desire for people to stay in touch. So the flip side of that, of course, is if you know you can stay in touch, you may be more likely to move, to take longer trips. Well, I'm sure that the government and the post office were uh, eager to supply this longing, this expectation now to communicate uh, across space. So did they adapt and provide Americans what they needed? In the end, in 1845 and then again in 1851, Congress radically both slashed the cost of postage and sort of redesigned the fee scale. They made it based on weight rather than number of pages or distance, congressmen said, well, if we lower the postage, more people will use it and it won't cost us any more money. But that argument was only plausible because congressmen thought that there was a demand to use it. Incidentally, the right. demand was in part illustrated by things like the tricks that I was talking about. David Hinken is a professor of history at the University of California, Berkeley. His book is The Postal Age, the Emergence of Modern Communications in 19th Century America. Next up is Backstory listener David Taylor. Let's hear about his favorite show. Hi, this is David Taylor calling from Washington, D.C., Two moments that come to mind for me are from two episodes. One is episode 207 uh, about Charlottesville after the uh, the riot, and that uh, the personal dimension of uh, all three hosts sharing that was really powerful. The other, I may be biased, but uh, episode 274 uh, about the death on the assembly line and the combination of the industrial tragedies presented were just a surprise to me. Uh, and thank you all for, for the tremendous 
view of history that you've given uh, through the years. I look forward to what comes next. Take care. Well, Joanne, this one is from the period that I write about the most. And one of the reasons it's such a terrific segment, and Charlie does an amazing job, is that it starts with terrific scholarship by our colleague Brian Simon, who wrote the book, The Hammock Fire. I think this piece also does something that backstory does really well, and that is explore things that are unpleasant or uncomfortable or tragic and really go deep to find out what's there. Nathan starts off this segment from our show, Death on the Assembly Line. In September 1991, a fire erupted inside a chicken processing plant in Hamlet, North Carolina. The flames and toxic smoke killed 25 people and injured dozens. Many of the employees tried to escape through the exits, but they were trapped because several of the doors were padlocked from the outside. Now, 28 years later, Hamlet residents and former employees of the plant are still grappling with the painful memory. Our producer, Charlie Sheldon Ormond, went to Hamlet and spoke with some of the people who were there the day of the fire. Here he is with the story. Annette Pierce Zimmerman has lived in Hamlet her whole life. All my life, 53 years. Annette spends a lot of time working for her church. She's the church secretary. She runs a food pantry there. And we've been feeding the men at the homeless shelter every fourth Wednesday for the past three years. But it isn't always easy for Annette to stay on the go. She carries with her constant reminders of the tragedy that struck Hamlet nearly three decades ago. I have been sick for the past 27, 28 years. My body has gone through numerous aches and pains and changes. Before the fire, I never had a headache. Since the fire, I don't think I can go a week. I haven't had a week where I didn't have a headache. The pain is a constant reminder of what we've been through. Annette worked at the Imperial Food Products chicken processing plant for three years before a deadly fire erupted inside the facility. During her time there, she says she mostly worked in the packing department. By the time it reached us, the chicken was already fried, frozen, and then typical dad going, going at 7 or 8, depending on what orders we had. Go in the packing room, I would weigh chicken tenders. I enjoyed my job. I think I enjoyed the people more than the job. If you saw me, you would always see a, a lady named Brenda Kelly and Margaret Banks. No matter what, uh, they call us the Three Musketeers. Even though she appreciated her community of coworkers, Annette says the conditions in the plant could be tough. Just for example, employees might find themselves working the fry line, where it was so hot that even in the middle of winter, you'd be stripped down to very little clothing. But no matter where you were in the plant, it was hard to avoid the smell permeating through the building. The smell of raw chicken at times, till you got used to it, could be quite unbearable. And walking through the fryer area, that was the hottest part of the building. That area it was just smells of burnt grease mostly. The roof was coming in on one end, so it wasn't a, a safe structure at all. But in areas like this, you, when jobs are hard to come by, you have to go to work in unsafe conditions just to feed your family. So the majority of us, we wanted to work. 
At least that was my reason for going there. I wanted a job. I wanted to support my children on my own. I had two kids at the time. So I wanted to be able to show them that hard work paid off and we could have something of our own. The ability, like Annette says, to have something for your own, like a house or a car, has looked different for people in Hamlet in the past. Before Imperial came to town in 1980, Hamlet was known for one thing, the railroad. Hamlet had been the center of several major rail lines in the South, and it had developed around the railroad station, literally and symbolically, the center of the town was this quite beautiful Victorian train depot. And radiating out from that, in a sense, were all the things that happened from the railroad. This is historian Bryant Simon. A few years ago, he published a book called The Hamlet Fire. Simon says Hamlet's success as a railroad town gave its residents a good deal of economic freedom. In Hamlet, um, officials even bragged that they were the leading center of backyard swimming pools in the South. And, and, and the brag was that the railroad had allowed working class men to move into the middle class. And what begins to happen in the late 1950s and kind of slowly into the 1970s is the railroad industry collapses. Meanwhile, as the railroad industry disappeared in Hamlet, up in Pennsylvania, two men, Emmett Rowe and his son Brad, were running a chicken processing plant. But things weren't going great. Their plant was far from their chicken supplier, and they were frustrated by Pennsylvania's labor regulations. And so they're facing their own kind of crisis of profitability, and they begin to look to move. And when they begin to look to move, um, the owner of the company sees an ad for a shuttered ice cream plant in Hamlet, North Carolina. And surely he does what anybody in his position would do. He did a profile of the place. And the things that mattered to him were rates of unemployment, kind of wage rates, really vulnerability. And what he found was maybe the perfect place for a business, a place in which jobs had collapsed, in which primary industries had fallen apart in which in which there was a surplus of labor. And so what's important about this system, this system of cheap that's in place there, is the government. And its lack of involvement is a crucial dynamic here. And, and in fact, something that the state of North Carolina advertises to potential investors. I mean, slyly, they essentially say, look, you can come here and run your plant the way you want to. So once in Hamlet, the Rose were able to operate the Imperial plant with little to no oversight. Simon says Imperial wasn't the only business that was enticed by this. By 1990, North Carolina was the most industrial state per capita in the country. And so it has 180,000 workplaces in 1990. And it has somewhere in the neighborhood of between 35 and 45 factory plant inspectors. So if you break that down, if they did their job and they inspected one factory a day, every day, five days a week, it would have taken them somewhere between 67 and 72 years to inspect every plant in the state. That meant the Rose could violate almost any safety rule and never get caught. So equipment didn't have to be up to code and doors could stay padlocked from the outside. The owners, Brad and Emmett Rowe, locked the factory doors to stop their employees from stealing chickens. That wasn't the true story, but it it has importance to it. The real story is, is that the back of the plant where the main door was locked 
was a place that workers would go out to throw boxes away and they would go out to maybe get a smoke. But what was happening is because there was so much traffic out that back door, flies were coming into the factory. And the flies immediately went to the meat. And the officials from the USDA were hounding the rows in the spring and summer of 1991 about these flies. And one of the maintenance men for the rows suggested, well, why don't we just lock the door? Then no one can go out and the flies can't come in. And the USDA said, that's fine. There was no proof that anyone was stealing chicken, but that was the allegation. Was it worth lives lost to lock those doors over the allegation of some stolen chicken? On September 3, 1991, Annette came into work early. Along with the rest of the workers, she had just enjoyed a day off from Labor Day. And she says, like always, she started work that day with her two good friends, Brenda and Margaret. We'd always clock in together. And we went in early and we played around that morning. We pulled each other's smocks and had these plastic aprons to wear. We kept tearing our aprons, just playing and talking about you know, our Labor Day weekend, and we usually always work together. And we got separated that morning. By 8.30, we heard women screaming, and there's this big, thick partition that separated the frying room from the thigh room. So when I opened it, all you saw was this big black smoke and women running, and uh, somebody yelled, fire. And then the lights started flickering, so we knew that it was something serious then, and we, it was too black, you couldn't see. And then the power went out, and I ended up falling. That's when I got stepped on. I don't know how long I was on the floor, but I remember making it to the area where the freezer was, where the door that we tried to get out of. And 20, maybe 25 of us ended up in that little area pressed up against the door, and the guy, Bernard Campbell, he squeezed through it. Somebody tore the siding, and he got through the hole to go get somebody with a key. Uh, he hurt his back that particular day. Um, but he got out and got the key. I passed out before they opened the door. I remember seeing the door come open because I saw the sunlight, and I remember them telling us to back up because they had to push the door in but we were pressed up against the door. But by the time they got it open, uh, the first two ladies in the front had died, as Miss Peggy Anderson was one of those ladies that had died at the front. Uh, they said she was smoke inhalation and she had a heart attack from being crushed against, you know, all the people pressing against her. And I almost ended up in the freezer with couple other people because that's what they said go in the freezer close the door and you could be able to breathe a group of workers get to that loading dock and they realize the doors were locked and so they scurry into a cooler thinking that the cooler will protect them from the flames not knowing that um what will kill them was carbon monoxide what they also didn't know in a kind of brutal irony was that 
That was one of the doors that actually didn't close right. It had not been fixed, so it, it didn't close tight. So they basically were in this chamber as carbon monoxide seeped into it, and 12 people died in there. I came to again. I was outside on the ground beside uh, Miss Cleo Reddick, and they were giving me oxygen. I gave uh, her my oxygen mask and got up, and I woke up again. I was in the rescue squad. So I don't know how much time had passed between the beginning of the fire and the time I got to the hospital. I don't know. The fire was caused by a hydraulic line that powered a conveyor belt. This belt took battered chicken tenders up a ramp and dumped them into a fryer. But the hydraulic line kept causing problems. The uh, maintenance crew got there early that morning, and they hooked up a new hydraulic line with the wrong parts. They didn't have the right parts because the owner of the plant, Brad Rowe, refused to pay for the right parts. So when the line turned on, a disconnected hose spewed flammable hydraulic fluid. This ignited the flames from the fryer and caused an explosion that cut the factory in half. 25 people died from the flames and toxic smoke that consumed the plant. After the fire, Imperial went bankrupt. Emmett Rowe, his son Brad, and plant manager James Hare were indicted on 25 counts of involuntary manslaughter. Emmett Rowe pled guilty for all of them and got an 18-year prison sentence. He only served four and a half. Annette has battled health problems ever since. She's had multiple surgeries for her neck, knee, and back. She's been diagnosed with asthma and lung disease from smoke inhalation. She says many of the workers had to go through a long process to receive compensation for their injuries, and some of them even had to pay a portion of that back. In addition to her health, Annette has also dealt with the haunting memory of the fire, a trauma she spent decades coping with. It's much better now than it had been. We had years of therapy, uh, but it's been my faith in being active in church that has helped more than anything. Uh, if I didn't have church, I didn't have God, I, I know I wouldn't be here. I've had those suicidal moments in regards to that. I was felt guilty for years because Brenda and Margaret both died. I felt guilty because we were the three musketeers. What happened to one happened to all three of us. You know, all for one, one for all. And I wasn't there. I wasn't with them when um when they died. I don't know yet. Nobody would ever tell me where where they were found at. But I I find comfort in, in believing that whichever area they died in, they were together. Annette says for years she couldn't drive past the burned-down building. And when she did, she'd often experience anxiety attacks or sit in her car in a trance, mesmerized by the discarded remains. For 10 years, the Imperial plant stayed up in Hamlet as a scar of the tragedy. I think it was a, a lack of concern for people and more of a concern for profit. If they could have got more profit out of it, I think they would have. The plant was in the black part of town, and that meant if you went to school, you had to pass the plant. If you went to the Piggly Wiggly, the only supermarket in town, you had to pass the plant. 
If you went to some churches, you had to pass the plan. If you wanted to go to Main Street, you had to pass the plan. And it was a form of terror, essentially. And the town wouldn't take it down because it wouldn't spend the money to do so. Why? They were hoping that another industrial concern would locate there. Because how could the town function without the revenues generated by taxes from that plant? The building stayed hollowed and dilapidated until former workers and other community members petitioned city officials to tear it down. Today, a memorial is in place at the old site, which sits right around the corner from Annette's church. Yes, it's walking distance. Walking in or it's not even a minute drive. Yeah, we can actually go there if you like. This, uh, the little path there, that is actually the spot that led to the loading dock where the truck was parked at and the door was locked. This here would have been the break room area. At the Memorial Park, I also spoke with Willie Baldwin. He was a supervisor at Imperial. We talked about what it took to tear down the building and how the community and politicians outside of Hamlet had to pressure the city. It was a hard fought battle. It was sad that we had to get outside politicians to come in and to help us get this thing torn down because it was eyesore. And then on top of that, you know, it was infested with all type of diseases, you know, and I had kids walking through here, you know, we don't see our kids all the time when they leave the house because some of them could have came up here and got messed up and we never knew nothing about it. Both Annette and Willie say city officials have always been reluctant to address the tragedy. Even today, they're still waiting on an official dedication for the memorial from the city. It's never going to happen. <laughs> it ain't going to happen until we start pushing it. But we shouldn't have to push for that. Whenever the building was torn down and they said they'd do a memorial park, they said we would officially dedicate it when the trees grew. Trees are grown. Then they said when the trees bloom. They have bloomed a few times. Yeah. But we still have no, no official dedication. A little bit down the road from the old imperial site lies another memorial, one the workers put up shortly after the fire. It includes a stone monument with the names of those who died and a poem written by Annette. Silver and gold have we none, just love overflowing for everyone. Once you were here, now you're gone. With tears, joy, and sorrow, your love and memory lingers on. Bryant Simon says there are eerie similarities between the Hamlet fire and the notorious Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire in New York City 80 years prior. That fire killed close to 150 people. And like Hamlet, many of the workers couldn't escape because the doors to the stairs and exits were locked. The Triangle Fire brought national attention to dangerous sweatshop conditions, which led to stricter labor laws and more federal regulations. And Simon says that's where Triangle and Imperial start to look different. Triangle created a kind of fundamental rethinking of the role of government. And in the wake of Hamlet, that didn't happen. And again, I think that that's the way in which this system of cheap creates a logic that is hard to get out of. What's the answer to cheap? It's not more government. It's more industry that will create more jobs. And, and that essentially 
was the state of North Carolina's response. And if anything, it's become increasingly the response of other states around the country as, as we have this sort of fiction of state lines right in this country that forces competition for dwindling um, opportunities. And in a sense, we've redefined the function of government not into protecting people, but into being some sort of engine for job creation. We just don't care about what the jobs are, or what the costs are in the back end. And there's nobody really... I don't know who's out there who's really challenging that kind of broader logic. I want to know if it was worth it. That would be my question to them. If the 25 lives lost that day and those that have died from their injuries since then, what was it worth it? Was it worth the profit that they made from the business that they ran and, and to run it the way they did? And if they could do something different, would they have? Would that have actually changed them? Was it worth locking the doors? That was producer Charlie Sheldon Ormond with the story. Special thanks to Annette Pierce Zimmerman, Willie Baldwin, and Bryant Simon. Simon's book is The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. Now, let's hear from our last caller, History teacher, Jennifer Banowitz. Hi, Backstory. This is Jennifer Banowitz. I'm calling from Chicago. I chose the two episodes called Contested Landscapes. I found the episodes valuable because the hosts and the guest speakers were able to explain the history behind the flags and the statues, while at the same time examining the emotional attachment to those objects. Many people use history to support their actions or justify their decisions. What is often missing in someone's understanding of history is the context of that specific event, or that person cannot separate their emotional attachment to the event and be able to look at it objectively. I will miss the new episodes very much, but I'm happy to have all those old podcasts to still listen to. So thanks very much, everyone. Boy, Jennifer, lucky our podcast is ending because you're angling for my job as co-host. Well, that is a wonderful, insightful way of introducing this next segment, which I suppose couldn't be more timely because we're wrestling really with these topics right now. So without further ado, here's the segment, Flags of Our Forefathers, from our show, Contested Landscape. I start this one off. We're going to turn now to the history of the Confederate flag. But it's probably not the one you're picturing. There's a, a, an amazing variety of Confederate flags, plural. This is John Kosky, author of The Confederate Battle Flag, America's Most Embattled Emblem, and historian at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. For full disclosure, I should mention here that I'm chair of the board of that museum. 
Anyway, I met John at the museum where, it is true, there is an incredible array of Confederate flags. One thing about Confederate flags for people who study 1860s Confederate flags, there were lots and lots of them. The story of the flag, or flags, began in 1861. That's when the Confederate Congress formed a committee to solicit designs for a national flag, one that could rally the South to its cause. Some fought for a design that was entirely new and distinctively Southern, such as a palmetto tree. But most Confederates preferred something that looked familiar. White Southerners of the Confederacy in 1861 still thought of themselves as Americans, as very much as citizens of the United States who helped form the United States. And they did not want to yield to the Yankees the symbols of the once United Nation. So... They need to be weaned, if you will, from the symbols of the old United States. The committee ended up picking a design that looked a lot like the United States flag. Koski showed me the design. Thirteen white stars on a blue canton in the upper left-hand corner. Instead of 13 red and white stripes, however, there are just three. Three big bars, uh, red, white, and red from top to bottom. One of the flags that was rejected was designed by South Carolina Congressman William Porsche Miles. His design eventually became the Confederate flag that we think of today. A red field, crossed with blue stripes, filled with white stars. Miles was furious with the committee's choice. Miles could not believe that his own nation, his own committee, would choose that flag because it resembled the stars and stripes. And in so many words, told them, you'll regret it, and they did. It turns out that choosing a flag in wartime was a complicated business. Now, typically, national flags are also battle flags. And, of course, a battle flag, by uh, definition, was supposed to be something distinctive that allowed leaders on the field to maneuver their troops, identify and distinguish friend from enemy. Imagine you're a soldier facing enemy fire. You can barely hear your orders over the gunfire. You can't see through the smoke. But you do see flashes of color waving over the melee. Is that the flag of the enemy heading straight for you? It was a dramatic moment to see these flags. And of course, for the, the on, on the receiving end, it was scary as hell to see these, these units coming at you. In an effort to strike at the morale of the enemy, you fire into the crowd, hoping to hit the flag bearer. But then you realize that you fired on your own troops because your flag and your enemy's flag are so hard to tell apart. And when you have two flags that look so much like each other, especially in the smoke of battle, it defeated the purpose. Fortunately, individual divisions and armies designed and carried their own flags. There was the 1st Florida Volunteer Division, 3rd Kentucky Mounted, 10th Tennessee Irish Infantry, and on and on. Out of this profusion, William Porsche Miles' flag was chosen as the battle flag for the Army of Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee's army. The one that gave the South its most uh, stunning victories and, in the long run, kept the South alive. Lee's success made Miles' flag hugely popular throughout the Confederacy. The Confederate nation, the populace, uh, saw in that flag not only the sacrifices of the men who fought under it, but the hopes for actually winning this war and achieving Confederate independence. In 1863, the Confederate Congress incorporated the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia into the official flag of the Confederacy. At Miles' request, The tilted blue cross and red background were placed in the upper left-hand corner. The rest of the flag was white. Uh, 
did no one point out that it looks like a flag of surrender at the time? Not at the time. It, it wasn't until late 1864 that uh, the voices rose uh, more loudly to point out that it looks like a flag of surrender, which, of course, was a little too close to the truth about that time as the Confederacy began to collapse. And it would be so nice for compromise today if we could say that flag is the flag of the soldier and not the flag of the nation. That's exactly what today's flag defenders say, that it stood for the soldier, not for the Confederacy. Here's Jeff O'Kane, former head of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, on NBC News two years ago. Now, this was when South Carolina took down the Confederate battle flag from its state house grounds. The flag had flown there for 54 years. It's a war memorial to honor 25,000 men. A quarter of the men in South Carolina died to protect this state. But there's a lot more to the story. It meant so much to those men who fought and marched under it, that emotional attachment that battle flags have. But because it was emblazoned on the national flag, it also did stand for the Confederate nation. You cannot separate the two. There's no way around it. There is no clean break between the flag of the soldier and the flag of the nation. And that's not John Kosky, historian, looking back. That is true because of the act of the Confederate leaders themselves. But in the 150 years since the Civil War, the meaning of the Confederate battle flag has morphed. Kosky says fights over the flag symbolism are rooted in a misunderstanding of its history. And for some people, it is the history of the Confederate soldier on the battlefield. For others, it is the history of the Dukes of Hazard. For others, it's the history of a motorcyclist trying to make a statement about his independence. And for others, very clearly, it's the experience of encountering that flag in the hands of people who meant to do them harm. John Kosky says that all these meanings depend on which part of the flag's history you're talking about. One thing about the evolution of the Confederate flag over time is it it's not a substitution of meanings. It's an accretion, an aggregation of meanings, one after another. So we're going to chart those many meanings through, let's call it, three acts in the flag's evolution. Act one, a sacred artifact of war. The move towards that is already beginning in 1890. This is historian Mari McInnes. She says that after the Civil War, flags that had been flown in battle were locked up in the War Department in Washington. Some were controlled by heritage organizations, such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And these flags were only unfurled during solemn commemorative ceremonies, such as funerals, reenactments, and statue dedications. Remember that towering bronze Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond? McGinnis says that on the day it was unveiled, in 1890... The Confederate battle flag was on massive display. The city was overwhelmingly draped in the Confederate flag, Confederate music, Confederate uniforms. Northern journalists in attendance were shocked to see so many flags being waved so passionately. Many of them were writing about the flag of treason, that they could not believe that the flag of treason was being almost worshipped um, as an idolatrous god. The event, which lasted a week, didn't escape the notice of African-American journalists either. And they, too, were so distressed at the reappearance of the Confederate flag. What was the meaning of this for them? Because at the time, in 1890, 
they were still feeling fairly hopeful about their political futures and their inclusion in the citizenship. Commemorations such as this troubled African Americans and Northerners, but the flag was rarely displayed outside of such formal events. By the middle of the 20th century, however, the flag started appearing in other places, and as that image spread, heritage organizations lost control of its meaning. Which brings us to Act Two, college football. College students seem to be the best beginnings of proliferation. Specifically, college students at Kappa Alpha, a fraternity formed at Washington and Lee University in 1870. This was just after Robert E. Lee died. The fraternity was founded as a heritage organization, and the flag was a symbol of Kappa Alpha pride. By the 1920s, Kappa Alpha was, chapters around the South were using it in their college rituals. When Latter-day members of Kappa Alpha were drafted in World War II, they brought along the Confederate flag. And that's when they lost control over its meaning. Other soldiers adopted the flag as a symbol for all things white and Southern. When Southern soldiers returned from the war and went to college under the GI Bill, they brought the flag to one of peacetime's most contested grounds, the gridiron. In 1947, Harvard's football team traveled south to play the University of Virginia. UVA fans waved the flag of Southern pride with gusto, as was their tradition. But this time, things were different. Harvard had an African-American football player named Chester Pierce, a star football player. Taking to the field, Pierce and his teammates looked up and saw a sea of Confederate battle flags and rowdy students. And very widely in the northern press, uh, it was assumed that this was some kind of gesture, uh, if not a racist gesture, taunting of Chester Pierce with Confederate battle flags. The team worried about Pierce's safety and braced for racist threats. But according to Pierce, the game was pretty much like any other. And uh, UVA stalwarts were very defensive in saying, no, this has been part of our football tradition in recent years. Koski says in the late 1940s, the flag's meaning was ambiguous. And so it was, a, it was at a pivotal point in the flag's history where it, was, it, it anticipated uh, a time in which the flag was, had a more sinister meaning. Even if, even if the, the UVA fans who used that flag did not mean it in a sinister way, uh, others were beginning to do so. Which brings us to Act 3 in the flag's afterlife, desegregation. In 1948, the Confederate flag's more sinister meaning resurfaced. That was the year that the Democratic Party formally included civil rights in its platform. Now, some white Southerners protested and formed the state's rights Democratic Party, commonly referred to as the Dixiecrats. That first convention in Birmingham, Alabama, was awash in Confederate battle flags. They were carried into the convention by college students. So there was a direct pipeline, if you will, from colleges already accustomed to the use of the battle flag as a football symbol, for example, and part of collegiate life to make it a very highly charged political symbol in the Dixiecrat party. It will surprise no one that the Ku Klux Klan had also embraced the flag at this time. Today, it's a common argument that the flag is only a racist symbol when it's in their hands. But Koski points out that if Klansmen were the only ones using the flag as a symbol of hatred, it would be easier to ignore. The trouble is, 
It wasn't just the Klan. Almost every major and minor incident of the civil rights era, ordinary white Southerners were using that flag to speak to their opposition to civil rights. Around this time, the Confederate battle flag became an embedded symbol of pop culture. The Confederate flag was everywhere. It wasn't in the Black community, but as soon as you left the Black community. This is historian Brenda Stevenson. She grew up in Virginia in the 1960s as the country was struggling to integrate. And even when we integrated the schools, when we first came into contact with, you know, white children on a daily basis, Confederate flags were everywhere in their lockers. They would draw them on their notebooks, you know, shirts, uh, T-shirts that had them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a great symbol, of course, of the Confederacy and also of apartheid, of the racial apartheid we had all been living in. It's worth remembering that leaders of the Confederacy struggled to apply one meaning, the identity of the Confederate nation, to many flags throughout the war. Today, Americans have a different challenge. What to do with this one flag that has so many meanings? Brenda Stevenson says that struggle is especially difficult because so many people are so invested in the flag's many meanings. You know, there is a place for people whose ancestors were in the Confederacy, for for the Confederacy. There is a place for that history in U.S. history. It's part of U.S. history. But it has to be in conversation with the other heritages, even those that are oppositional, and particularly those that are oppositional to that Confederate um, heritage. Brendan Stevenson is a historian at UCLA. Also helping us tell that story were John Kosky, historian at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, and Mari McInnes, provost at the University of Texas, Austin. for us today. Thanks for joining us in this look back to some of your favorite moments from Backstories history. We'd love to know what you thought about these segments. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the Johns Hopkins University, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>